Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the show, head on over to thebookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com. Click on the orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page where you can donate via Buy Me A Coffee. And thanks to everyone who has supported the show. You're listening to episode 167. Abdul Razak Gurna is the winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature. He is the author of nine previous novels, including Paradise, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and By the Sea, longlisted for the Booker Prize and a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Born and raised in Zanzibar, he is Professor Emeritus of English and Postcolonial Literatures at the University of Kent, and he lives in Canterbury, England. Hi, Abdul Razak, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. It's a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed your new book, Afterlives. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful story. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And we'll talk about your writing and your other books a little later in the interview. But before then, I'd like to know about your life. You gained your master's and PhD from the University of Kent in Canterbury, UK, where you are now Emeritus Professor of English and Postcolonial Literatures. But what initially drew you to the County of Kent and to teaching? Well, it was it was a chance, complete chance. Um, the anthropologists call it chain migration. So when my brother and I were in our teens, more or less, decided to make this dash for the UK, uh, a cousin of mine was completing his PhD at the University of London. Um, he was working in agriculture and the University of London Agriculture College was in a place called Y, which is Y-W-E, not the same Y as the one in Wales, uh, but Y right here between Canterbury and Ashford. So that's how we ended up in Canterbury, really. He completed his PhD, went off to Ghana to do his academic first academic job, went off somewhere else, and we were here. We stayed here for, for a while anyway. So that's how, by, just by chance, we ended up here in Canterbury. But I, I liked it here, so I stayed on. Uh, studied here, married here, my children grew up most of the time here, although part of the time we spent in London as well. So as at least in the first part of the answer to your question is that that's how Canterbury could have been York, Leeds, Glasgow, anyway, just following that connection. Yeah, then, then I stayed on and then started to study here and work. I worked in different places here in Canterbury in the hospital, teaching, and then eventually in due course, a long while later, at the university. And when you and I were speaking a little earlier, I mentioned my son earned his MA in Creative Writing at the University of Kent, and his wife, Rosa, recently received her PhD in Creative Writing from the University of Kent. 
And when neither Jack or Rosa were able to take one of your classes, they told me that you were very well loved and very well respected by everyone who took your classes, which is always lovely to hear. It's always nice to be loved. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, of course. We would be really rather amazed that you have this Kent connection already. I spent a long time teaching there, um, 35 or so years. Um, went through from you know being a new recruit to being this and that and that and that. And yeah, I went through all the various things that one does in an academic career. And I think I met uh, hundreds of students during the, uh, that period, both met in the sense of teaching, but also lecturing to them and so on. But out of all of those, I didn't meet your son. <laughs> yes, he was disappointed, but never mind. Maybe you'll meet sometime in the future. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of your latest novel, Afterlives, please? It's not easy to do a short synopsis of a novel because, in a way, if you could, then why would you bother? Yes, I think sometimes writing the synopsis makes writing a book look easy. <laughs> That's quite right. But I always wanted to write about the war, or rather the episode of the war, which is not often um, written about or known about or written frivolously about as a kind of uh, a minor event or a marginal event. And it's understandable that we saw from the European It's understandable that from the point of view of, of Europe, that the, the focus of their attention would be what happened in Europe during 1914-1918. But the war did play itself out in other parts of the world as a continuation, in a way, of European colonial competition, if you like. Some people have described the, the, the war in East Africa between the British and the Germans and the, the Belgians and the Portuguese as the final episode, if you like, of the scramble for Africa, that they've drawn the maps, but now they want to say, no, no, we don't want you to have that, we want it. But it didn't quite figure in, or doesn't quite figure in the popular imagination in, in Europe when people speak about the war, that war in 1914-18. They don't remember this part of the war. And yet the casualties of that war ran into hundreds of thousands, mostly civilians, mostly as a result of starvation and disease, mostly as a result of the contemptuous way that these uh, colonial armies uh, dealt with the civilian population. Keeping in mind that most of the colonial armies were actually African soldiers, which makes it even more ironic, of course, led by European officers. Why did I want to write about this? Well, that kind of gives you a clue that these are things that I heard about uh, when I was growing up, although I was growing up much later, of course, in these events, but uh, they were still being spoken about. I, I had relatives who had been part of this. And there was the other question of who, who chose to take part to join these colonial armies too, and why? What was the understanding? These are the kind of issues that uh, interested me about this whole episode. People don't know about it, and those who do know about it can't quite figure out why it is that people did what they did. And then it seems to have been forgotten. These are good reasons to write a book about it. Yes, they are. And what drew me into your story, Afterlives, is the relationships between the individuals within the story and how it is juxtaposed with the outer story of the war. Uh, specifically, these two men, I kept asking myself, why 
Why are they leaving their friends and family and going off to join the army? What, but why? But why, Mandy? Why do people go and join the army? Anytime. Well, let's think about it. It's partly because there is a kind of a ideological thing that says fight for your country. There is the other thing that says we are all in this together. Why aren't you volunteering? Why aren't you joining up? There is the other thing, which is to do with that beautiful uniform that you can wear and come strutting about all over the place. And there is also coercion, too. There is also coercion. There is also money. Job. It's a job. Particularly when... And there's also power and the prestige of power. You are associated with the conqueror rather than the conquered. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I can understand. I don't, I don't even have the build for that kind of thing. So... I don't think I would have been one of those. But you imagine a, a young person, you know, idea of adventure, joining up, technologies, guns, prestige, uniform, whatever. Why not? You can see how it might have drawn people. Yes. And on page 88, I think you sum this up beautifully when Hamza asked Julius, quote, who are we fighting? And Julius replies, who do you think? Did you not hear them say it was going to be a big war? It could be the Belge or the Portuguese, but the British won't let them do that. So it must be all of them. We'll be fighting all of them. The Germans wouldn't say it was going to be a big war if they were talking about the Wachaga or the Wahadimu, end quote. In that short conversation, you showed how confusing the fighting must have been. Can you help me understand why Africans fought against each other and banded with the British or Germans? Why didn't they band together? Well, because I suppose there was no idea of African. These were people who were Wachaga, Wahadimu, Wanamwezi, whatever, who were small nations in their own right. The same kind of thing, you can see that paradigm, the same kind of thing would have happened in North America, that, uh, that you could pick them off one at a time the uh, Native American people who are, in, in fact, in fact, antagonists to their neighbors. So you could defeat them and then use them to fight the neighbor and then use them to fight another neighbor. So the idea of nation, so the idea of a Native American nation, if that had existed, it would have been a lot harder for those pilgrim fathers to get a, their act together. Just as it was for the Aboriginal people when the English arrived in Australia. Sure, sure. Because people did not think of themselves in that way as nations. They weren't ready for that yet. Europe was already there. Of course, the Middle East and India were already there. So in, in India, the British had to fight their way to dominance. In Europe and uh, the Middle East, the Ottomans had to fight their way to dominance. They had to defeat national bodies. They didn't have to do that in Africa. And not everywhere, of course. In some places they did. But in our part of the world, they didn't have to do that because they were dealing with small, if you like, nations, what they call tribes, but small nations, which, you know, were okay doing what they were doing, and they hated their neighbors, like everybody does. They were able to capitalize on that and deal with one after the other. The, the case of the, although we're moving away from that war history, but the, in the case of that Georgia-East Africa, it was a constant war between 1888 until 1918, 30 years of war, fighting this one and fighting that one and fighting that one. And they call it a civilizing mission. Okay, I'm going to move on to a part of the book where you describe someone's personality 
in such a beautiful way. And it's when the Germans have made camp in the woods, quote, Some of the trees there were vast. Earlier, when Hamza put his arms around a trunk, he felt its heart beating and the sap surging up to the branches, end quote. This sentence perfectly captured Hamza's gentle demeanor, and I wondered if the words flowed naturally to you, or did you pause and allow them to fall on the page? Because I'm starting to tear up just thinking about this. It was such a beautiful uh, introduction to his personality. Don't. It's okay. Cry. Cry. I don't. I, I don't. I, but things where things move me, I cry too, so it's fine. Yeah, well, I think I wanted to say that uh, it's also, he's a lost boy, he's quite young, and so he hugs the tree, which we think of as ridiculous, but it isn't really, because when he hugs the tree, he feels an energy and all of that. So, no, they didn't fall on the page. I thought it and wrote it down. I think that was my favorite sentence in the entire book. It was truly beautiful. Uh, when I speak with independent bookshop owners and booksellers and ask if there is any area of publishing that like to see broadened, they almost always answer books in translation, stories told by writers from other countries. Now, your books are translated into multiple languages, including your novel Paradise into Swahili. Paradise was published in 1994. So why do you think it has taken 28 years for this book to be translated into the language most Tanzanians speak? Well, I couldn't tell you the complete answer, but I can have a guess. Part of the reason is because there is no uh, publisher who wanted to publish it in Swahili. And there are reasons for this to do with a publisher publishes books when he she can anticipate a readership. People don't read for pleasure, or if they do, they read books that come from elsewhere, uh, James Bond or something like that. What they read are books that are set as school books. In other words, the children read because they have to pass exams. But people don't read for pleasure because of the expense of the book. It's a hard time still in uh, our part of the world. Uh, and books, if they're coming from elsewhere, are quite expensive. So that's one reason. The other reason is there has to be a publisher who wants to publish it, whichever part of the world it is. And since there hasn't been a publisher in Tanzania who wanted to publish this, anything of mine, or anything of anybody else's particularly, so they only publish what sells to schools, to the programs. Now they're ready to do it. That's the only explanation. There is no deep explanation. I don't think it's because... Uh, I was rejected or something like that because people were reading my books in English. But but that's also fine because I write them in English. But now the, there is a new publication coming out in a couple of months or so. Um, so really, that will be really interesting. It's just as interesting. I don't feel any kind of a thing about they have to read in Swahili. If they don't want to, it's okay. They can read it in some other language. Just getting back to something you mentioned, and that is the fact that it's very expensive to buy books in Tanzania. Please let me know if you are aware of any nonprofits who donate books to organizations in Tanzania, because I often receive emails from listeners wanting to support literacy worldwide. 
Many of the independent bookshop owners I've spoken with over the last two years donate books to schools for children and to libraries. I was actually quite shocked when I read the percentage of students who can read in the UK. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I remember being quite stunned when I read the number. It was much lower than I had expected. And this can often stem for the lack of books for children in schools and their local libraries, if they happen to have a library in the area where they live. I was a school teacher in the UK, and I was not as surprised as you are when I actually did reading tests. When Paradise comes out in Swahili, everybody will start reading it, and then everybody will be happy. Yes, it's exciting. Since being awarded the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature, Congratulations, that's quite an achievement. Thank you. Your books have gained popularity, especially here in the United States. How has your life changed, and is this how you envisioned retirement? No, no, not at all. I envisioned retirement, sort of being able to sit quietly, um, work on my vegetable patch, and write books at a pace that I wanted. But of course, I'm very grateful for this recognition that the Swiss Academy have uh, extended to me and um, that you know, opened my work to the world and etc. all of those things. How has it changed? I talk all the time. <laughs> I'm talking to you and I talk to people, I was going to say like you, but I don't mean they're like you at all, but I mean people doing what you're doing, which I think is okay because the whole point is that uh, as what's happening now is as new editions come out, like this one, then the uh, publishers want people to know about the existence of this edition. And you people are the ones who are helping to transmit this knowledge, uh, this information. Here's this book, this is what we think about it. So this is part of, part of the deal, part of how we do things. So I'm okay, I'm happy with it. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying some parts of it. I get this tiring and exhausting uh, as well at the same time, but you know, it's how it goes. You get this, let me say thank you to readers and I'll talk with you. Abdul Zarak, you mentioned your vegetable garden. How has the crazy weather in the UK, the heat wave you had this year, how has that affected your garden? Because I know it's affected my garden here in California. We have had crazy heat this year. Well, it's everything drying up, isn't it? Yes, that's almost an understatement. My son was telling me uh, that in his allotment, they are only allowed to use watering cans to water, no hoses at all. It's hard work. Carrying a watering can back and forth like that, it's, I can only manage about six of them. And then after six, I just give up and pour myself a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's in there? What's in there? Well, oddly enough, I have beautiful tomato plants, huge, and they flower, but the flowers die or they're not flowering. So I'm hoping it is not a pollination issue. Meanwhile, I have potatoes, leeks, onion, beans, zucchini, plenty of different herbs. I have cantaloupe, oranges, lemons, persimmons. Wow. Oh, and Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts? You grow Brussels sprouts? Yes, it's my first time. All right, okay. And this year I'm growing peanuts. I don't know what's going to happen to them, but we'll see. <laughs> You're crazy. Well, I just like experimenting. What about you? What are you growing? Oh, what am I growing? I've got, um, I've got potatoes. I've got, do you know those black potatoes? Do you grow those? 
No, I don't. I have seen them, I think, in specialty stores. Are they easy to grow like a regular potato? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've eaten, I, I only came across them a couple of years ago in a restaurant and I thought, they're so beautiful. I'm going to grow them. So I've got those growing and I've got the regular potatoes as well. And I've got my cucumbers are looking lovely at the moment. Tomatoes are looking good, but they're not turning. They're not turning red. And with this heat, you thought you'd think they would, but they're not turning red. So I've got good. And of course, courgettes are always lovely because they just produce, they, they reward you so beautifully. Oh, I love a good tomato with some basil and a piece of bread. I'm a happy girl. <laughs> yeah, so that's something else. I, I can't remember. Because it's not possible to do serious vegetable gutting when I'm doing so much of this. Yes, I completely understand. My garden is my, one of my happy places. It relaxes me, but it is a lot of work. I think, did I, did I, did I water? Oh, dear. Um, getting back to books, because I know you're on a time crunch today. What are you currently reading? Uh, I'm currently reading something for a piece of work that I'm doing. So it's a book about uh, Germans in the Cameroons, So because I'm writing something about that. And is there a book, a particular book you'd like to suggest more people read? A book I, I would suggest, there are three women writers, young women, young women, African writers. I don't know if you've come across them. Have you come across Maza Mengiste, Ethiopian? Maza Mengiste. No, but I'll definitely look her up. She had a book which was called The Shadow King, which is really about Heidi Salas in Ethiopia. Very good. Uh, there's a, perhaps may have heard of a Somali writer called Nadifa Muhammad. Her book, latest book was called The Fortune Men. Yes, that book was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2021, the Costa Noble Award in 2021, and also shortlisted for the Wales Book of the Year Award in 2022. She, I think, has, I don't know if she's back, but I think she was spending some while teaching somewhere in New York. I can't remember which institution. So I think she may still be in New York. Actually, Marza also lives in New York. Two I would love to have on the show. Do, do, because they're both brilliant speakers and, and their books are brilliant. Then there's another one who's a Kenyan woman writer, all three young women, or youngish women, to me, all of them are young, uh, called Yvonne Adiambo Owo, O-W-U-O-R, Owo. But in any case, it might be easier to, to uh, check out her book, which is called The Dragonfly Sea. If you check those three and you like at least, well, I'm sure you love all three of them, but I'm sure you'll have all three of them on your show. I'd like that a lot. Abdul Razak, thank you so much for being a guest on the Bookshop Podcast. I love your book, After Lives. I wish you all the best with it. And thank you. You too. You've been listening to my conversation with Abdul Razak Gurna, author of Afterlives and winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature for his uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of the refugee and the gulf between cultures and continents. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to thebookshoppodcast.brassprout.com, click on the little orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page, and you can donate through Buy Me A Coffee. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly 
Executive Assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otahan, and Graphic Design by Francis Parala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.